Hi, I'm Sarah Lauren Crump, the Communications Coordinator for Carolina Recycling Association and your host for this week. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the Paying It Forward report released by the Recycling Partnership. The report is about the cost to make recycling a reality for everyone, which is a bold $17 billion. Our guest is recycling legend Scott Mao, who is the lead author on this report and one of the most well-respected people in the industry. He will explain where the $17 billion will go and what we can do in the meantime to make recycling an accessible goal for all. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please don't forget to subscribe to the Carolina Recycling Podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself and uh, your title and, and sort of what you do? Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Scott Mao, and I'm the Senior Strategy uh, and Research Director for the Recycling Partnership. I've been with the partnership for about five and a half years. And in my job, I mostly kind of just focus on the performance of the U.S. recycling system uh, and support of a lot of our teams and doing their work, whether it's helping communities or working on specific materials or policy, uh, any number of those things. And of course, work with a lot of data and have done a fair number of our uh, studies and reports for the partnership. And then prior to that, I was uh, the state recycling director in North Carolina. I worked for the state for about 25 years. And then way back in time, I was a solid waste manager for Franklin County, North Carolina, um, where I had to run a landfill and do all those kind of crazy things. Um, so I've been in recycling for a long time and the Carolinas are near and dear to my heart. So you have worn quite a few hats throughout your time. Uh, yes, uh, the hats keep changing. If you're in recycling, the hats keep changing. <laughs> That's goes with the territory. So jumping into uh, paying it forward, where did the number of 17 billion come from and where is it going to be going over the next five years to enhance the recycling system? Yeah, so we uh, we in the Recycling Partnership have been thinking about the U.S. recycling system for a very long time uh, since our inception. And we've been trying to uh, pull together brand and other funding to really meaningfully intervene in that system. And then also, of course, now more uh, more closely work on policy issues um, that improve that recycling system. And in the course of that work, we would often get questions uh, like, you know, what is what does this ultimate um, goal look like? You know, what does the system look like when it's fully built out and performing it at a high level? Uh, and that so that induced us to do this report, uh, which is based on a a big model that relies on a lot of the data that we produce from our own work, uh, a lot of interactions we've had with communities in MRFs, um, a lot of uh, observations we've made about the system. Um, and through that, we saw then some key areas that needed investment, you know, really to, to bring us up to the level of recycling that we would call equitable recycling. And I can explain that a little bit further, but uh, really this is a $17 billion number that sees everybody uh, in America, uh, single or multifamily homes served uh, by recycling as as equitable to their you know, garbage service. Uh, MRFs that are very high functional and more MRFs uh, to serve a lot more material that will be coming from those programs. Very robust education. Uh, so something along the lines of $10 per household per year around the country to really get high quality uh, recyclables, very high participation rates, very high capture rates. And then finally, uh, a pathway for thermoflexible materials to become part of the mainstream recycling system. And when you add up all those pieces, they add up to $17 billion capital investment uh, that would uh, make recycling um, robustly available all over the country. 
That's that's amazing to just think that I mean that's no small chunk of change, but you know what that could do, you know, for for everyone. And what was it, one point two billion annually after that to sort of like keep it keep it rolling, essentially. Yeah, the one point two billion is really that educational piece. And so you know this report is really about the capital needed for you know making the system work better. So um, on the collection side, we're you know thinking about uh, carts, trucks, uh, collection containers at drop-off sites or multifamily sites, right? Um, for the MRFs, it's equipment, it's new facilities, etc. The education piece is a little different. It's really kind of a operational cost, you might say. But we thought it was such an important thing to highlight that we threw it in as part of the 17 billion. And so that's you know 1.2 billion per year. Uh, that's again 10 bucks per household, you know, around the country. Um, and that, that over five years. So um, we, we really think that that's a critical part of really moving the system forward, uh, especially as we have you know, universal access. So uh, we all know, and especially in the Carolinas, we know that when you know, we get carded programs in cities across the Carolinas or really across the US, um, those carded programs perform much higher uh, and much higher level than bin programs used to, but they kind of plateau a little bit in their recovery rates, and that's due to uh, some lack of participation by households and some lack of what we say optimal capture behavior, meaning people put all of their recyclables in the recycling bin. Um, so that 10 bucks per household is really designed in our analysis to get those numbers really working at a higher level. So instead of getting only 400 pounds per household served in a curbside program, we would get like 600 or 650, um, so much, much higher levels of performance. Wow, that that is quite a difference. I mean, if we can, right quick, can we circle back to equitable recycling and sort of define that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a it's a key term in what we're putting forth in the paint for report. Uh, so, in our analysis of the U.S. recycling system, we see about forty percent, or about forty million households, really have less than equitable recycling. So, to break that down a little bit, for example. Um, about 13 million out of the 22 or so million multifamily homes in the United States cannot recycle materials on property. You know, so they either have to uh, leave a property and go to a, a drop-off site, or maybe not even have access to a drop-off site, even uh, far away from their facility. Um, a handful of multifamily um, households already do have curbside recycling. For example, in New York City, um, multifamily households are highly served by curbside. Um, but you have that 13 million uh, household number across the country of folks who live in apartments, multifamily dwellings that can't recycle as easy as they can throw something away. And that's an example of an equity gap, uh, equitable gap in the, in the, program, in the US system. Uh, another one would be uh, folks who have to subscribe to recycling services. So there are about 17 million households in the US that can subscribe to recycling, oftentimes at an extra cost, but they, they don't. Um, so that's an equity gap that we also wanna, wanna cover and close. That would mean, again, for equitable recycling, it's as easy to, throw some, to, to recycle something as it is to throw it away. That's the key. Hopefully we can reach that goal sooner than later. Cause I mean, that's yes. the gap that is between, you know, people having to pay or you know, people just not having the resources available to them. It it's it's insane when you actually look at the numbers. So, yeah, I totally agree. And 
there's a little bit of another component to equitable and that some of these lack some of these areas that lack access also really correspond with uh, lower income um, or folks of color that don't have kind of access to services that other folks do. Um, so that's that's another key component of equitable access. If, again, we would want to see a system where everybody's served um, in the same way and robustly. Awesome. So how do you think that we can increase accessibility to recycling in the interim period of the $17 billion investment? An excellent question. You know, so you know, and a lot of uh, sort of listeners will know that there's a lot of activity around policy in the, in the United States, um, and really around producer responsibility. Um, it will take a long time to develop, but we already have four states that have producer responsibility laws in place. Why is that important? Because those laws will have fees on packaging that raise the capital necessary to close those gaps that we're talking about here. Unfortunately, we're only talking about four states with those laws, California, Oregon, Colorado, and Maine. We think there are going to be a lot more states in the next few years, um, maybe not in the southeast as quickly as other places in the, in the country. So we do have to keep working on closing the gap with, with other means. A really critical part of that is what EPA is getting ready to do this fall. They now have uh, a large grant program they can roll out, first time really historically that they may be able to do this. Uh, and they will uh, be really consequential in terms of helping close some of the capital gaps that are here. Um, state recycling programs are really critical for that. The kinds of work that the recycling partnership does to use brand dollars to close those gaps are important. Even things like uh, ordinances and other things that drive investment. So, for example, if a city passes a mandatory multifamily recycling ordinance, what that really does is drive investment and in collection, um, you know, services that achieves those goals that we're talking about. That you know, close access gap for multifamily households. So. Even something like a multifamily ordinance can be a source of capital, if you will, in closing those gaps. But you're really talking about a wide portfolio of just about anything we can think of and just throwing it at the system and making that incremental change over time. With those dollars from the EPA grants that are coming out, do you think it's going to help brands stay a little bit more consistent with their promises and goals that they have been making for recycling? Yeah, the the brands definitely have a, uh, a, a very tall mountain to climb. Um, so if you do the math on their uh, content goals for plastic bottles and containers and stuff like that, um, you can see uh, that the supply is just not there. Um, and the supply, if you scale it out, is enormous uh, for them to meet their goals. So yes, uh, what EPA will do, what the states continue to do, what local governments continue to invest in, um, what our organization does in investing will incrementally to help you know increase that supply and make it available for recycled content. Um, we also see, by the way, there's a lot of private investment happening. Like you know, uh, WM, the you know very large, the largest you know hauler in the U.S. that owns 45 or so MRFs in the country, uh, is uh, spending 200 million dollars of their own money this year in upgrading those MRFs and are building even new MRFs. So all those things will help in those brand goals. Uh, at the end of the day. Uh, you really can't see a way those gaps will close without policy, either EPR or increased numbers of deposit systems. Uh, and we've crunched a lot of data on this and we can see that to be true, um, that deposit and policy and EPR will probably be necessary to close that access gap, uh, the supply gap. 
sort of a tie-in, this weekend was the Emmys, and I was speaking with your colleague, Matt James, their cycling partnership about this yesterday, I believe. And at the Emmys, there, there was kind of a talk about there being Fiji plastic water bottles everywhere that had an additional plastic straw added in with a lot of celebrities that are- I, I'm glad I missed that. Uh. Yeah, it was nuts. It was nuts. And with so many celebrities right now taking stances for sustainability, and even Jason Momoa just shaved his head for yes. yeah, to to try to gain awareness for the plastic um, pollution issue that's going on. So with old traditions of living and the influence that the media has on the public's opinion of recycling and sustainable living, what do you feel is the best way to educate and restore trust in the recycling system so that we can see results sooner rather than later? Well, we definitely have to work on getting uh, more resources behind education and outreach. Um, and one of the things that the partnership's just done, it really is a function of us doing all these analyses that we've looked at um, over the years, uh, the, how the curbside system is performing. We did a state of curbside report in 2020. This pay for report builds on that. So, you know, we, we look at, um, you know, where those gaps are and, and clearly uh, behavior is kind of the next frontier of making recycling function at a higher level. Uh, and it goes without saying, you know, once you give uh, folks a cart, once they have access to recycling at their multifamily property, then it becomes an issue of behavior, like how many people use that system, how well did they use it? So to that end, we've just created a center for sustainable behavior and impact that is going to be a focal point of figuring out what works with behavior. Um, but you're exactly right. That's the key you know, sort of pivot we're going to have to make is uh, re-engaging with the public, you know, making sure that they have faith in the recycling system and trust it. Um, I think the numbers show us that they mostly do because they keep recycling even when they're bad, you know, stories about recycling and, uh, you know, um, negative stories that make it seem like it's not worth it. Um, you see in the tonnage data that folks do hang in there, right? And you see that communities that do a good job with their contamination education can really reduce that contamination and get citizens to behave better, so to speak. Um, but we'll need a bigger effort. We'll need a lot more money behind it. You know, that's why we chose a pretty high number in the paying forward report of $10 per household um, as the goal. Like you were talking about with numbers that are already important to recycling as, as a whole now, that there is a lot more faith in the system. Right now there's 15.4 million tons of recyclables currently collected annually. But with the investments that are going to be made in infrastructure and education and outreach, that more than doubles to 32.3 million tons, which just seems monumental. Yeah, it is. It's very monumental. Uh, you know, we're talking about scale change that is really hard to grasp. Um, and in many ways, this is a very idealized view of the recycling system that we put in this report. Like we were getting questions. We get questions from our funders. We get questions from the media and other folks like, you know, all right, you know, you advocate that the recycling system needs to be, you know, perfected in the United States. What does that look like? How much money is it going to cost? So, you know, we put that in, in place here and we connected it to what we could expect from materials coming forward from that investment. Um, and when you look at the data around, uh, say, capture studies, which we do uh, around the country in different communities, uh, and just other general data from curbside recycling programs, drop-off programs, you see that, um, you know, with the with access to recycling, you get pretty robust recovery. Um, and in our analysis, if we just concentrated on equitable access, uh, we would be at a point of uh, 
you know, recovering about half of the U.S. recyclables. Right now, we're recovering about a third of them. Um, so maybe a little bit more than half. Um, if everybody could recycle, this is at least some sort of big way. Um, but our capture study data does show us that, uh, and we all kind of know, right, from being this, in this business, that um, if 100 uh, households have a cart, recycling cart, you know, 15 or 20 percent of those households may not use it. Um, so that that material is straight out lost. Um, and then another great insight from capture studies is that folks don't recycle everything that's recyclable. You could have the recycling cart out next to the garbage cart, as was true in front of my house today, uh, up and down my street. And if you look in the garbage carts, you will find that people have put some recyclables in there, even though the recycling cart's right next to it. <laughs> uh, so with that data, we see that people just need more and more frequent reminders of, hey, you should recycle better. It goes to that behavior thing. If we do that, Sarah, yes, then I think we can get to a point where we're recycling it, uh, as much as two thirds or more of recyclables in the United States. A very simple way to put it would be, if everybody had access and if 90% of folks who had access recycled, 10% just refusing to for some reason, and if those 90% of, of, of households recycled 80% of their materials, um, that's a simple math equation. It's 0.9 times 0.7. You get 72% of recyclables recovered. And that really goes straight in line with our analysis. Um, everybody has access. 90% of people participating, they recycle 80% of their stuff. And you get a system functioning at a very high level. That is just amazing. It seems like there is such a bright future ahead whenever these these things, you know, are put in place and when everyone acts together. But what do you feel are the biggest risks of inaction that will impact everyone if we do not make these changes? Well, we just continue to run a system that fails to deliver on its promises, but both environmentally and economically, you know, um, we all as recyclers, I think, got in this business because we understand it's not just about garbage and waste. It's about the things that happen uh, around the use of materials, um, the energy impacts, the economic impacts, all those things, the greenhouse gas impacts, et cetera. So if we just keep you know, you know, clunking along with a U.S. recycling system that recovers a third of household recyclables, um, we're going to miss the opportunity to really uh, ramp up the contribution of recycling to greenhouse gas mitigation, right, um, to job creation. You know, both. And South and North Carolina have done a fantastic job of documenting job creation from recycling. And just think if those two states were recycling twice as much as they were currently doing, those job numbers would be a lot higher. It's those things that really that really kind of drove this analysis. It's those things that really we put out as a challenge um, to say, like, we're missing a lot of potential benefits here. $17 billion does sound like a big number, but in the big scheme of things, it's not really a big number. And we can get job creation, greenhouse gas mitigation, uh, and prevention and pollution prevention, you know, from that kind of investment. Awesome. Awesome. It just seems like there is so much hope in this system and it's going to be a great, a great transition that's going to be made. Um, but if there was one thing that you could, you could just tell someone who is struggling to start recycling because they feel like they don't even know where to begin, what is the biggest tip that you would have for them? Well, first thing I would say, it's worth it, right? You know, we need 
folks to recycle. We need businesses that offer recycling services. We need community programs that are super strong. And why do we need that? Because you know the, the benefits are just enormous. Like we all we in the recycling industry know that. Um, and it's very clear when you look at the energy impacts of using recycled materials over virgin materials. Uh, it's just just amazing. So you know, stay motivated. That rewards are really huge. Um, and then, you know, it sort of depends on the on the person you're talking to. If it's a household, you know, that we definitely need to educate them on why it's important and how they should participate at a very high level. Um, if it's a, a community, we want them to know that they've got a lot of support out there, uh, that we think, you know, communities can run better programs. It's highly feasible uh, and there's help for that. And if you're somebody, you know, looking at a recycling business, um, you know, it's a tough business for sure but you can definitely make a living uh, moving materials from waste to recycling. Um, and again, there's a lot of help for that, especially in the Carolinas. So I'd say, you know, let's stay optimistic. And it's really, really critical to stay optimistic. Um, and recyclers are nothing if not, you know, optimistic folks by nature. We have to be. <laughs> we have to be thinking that this is going to get better and just find ways to work on it to make it so. Uh, as the Beatles once said, it's getting better all the time. Getting better all the time. I like that. Now <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely to talk with you today and get to meet you. And I hope that you have a wonderful weekend as it's coming up. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great, great fun. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. The Carolina Recycling Association thanks Scott Mao for joining our own Sarah Crump, and the Carolina Recycling Association would like to thank our diamond sponsors. Sunoco Recycling and Pratt Recycling, who support everything the CRA does. Once again, thank you to the listener. We appreciate you tuning in to hear this conversation. And here's the theme song from Tom. <laughs>